but uh, it is a, a good opportunity for us to, to, to look at larger sections and to see uh, the historical narrative of, of what uh, Daniel is laying out for us. Um, this morning, I'm going to go ahead and read the first 18 verses, um, and uh, then the rest of it we'll look at as we, we go through the message. Daniel 4, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at my ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon, that they may make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in, and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. But finally Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, Since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream, which I have seen along with its interpretation. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all the living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on, the, on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it, in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. This is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, tell me its interpretation, inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give to us understanding of this passage of your word. This experience of Nebuchadnezzar, which he's written for us in his own words, under the inspiration of you, the spirit of God. We pray that you would help us to grasp how we might tell our story to those around us as Nebuchadnezzar told his. And we pray, our Father, that you would bless the telling of the story. 
and that men, women, and children will come to know you. We pray for our children and children's worship and ask, O oh God, that the gospel will go forth and that lives will be changed. Would you do all this for Jesus' sake? Amen. The theme that we've been following in the book of Daniel is to build God's kingdom while living in man's. We've continued to look at that, and in chapters 2 through 4, we've seen the flow that the real focus of those three chapters is on the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar. And in chapter 2, God brought uh, Daniel into his life to be a witness as Daniel was able to not only interpret the dream, but to tell what the dream was. He was able to, to understand what only Nebuchadnezzar knew in his mind, and in doing that, was able to demonstrate that God is real and that he exists. And, and that message went to Nebuchadnezzar. And in chapter 3, we saw that Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were protected from the decree of the king as the king had him thrown into the fiery furnace and, and they were fine. The only thing the fire did was take away their bonds and they were able to walk out in perfect safety and they were able to show the king that not only does the God uh, that they serve exist, but that he is a God who rescues his people and he's a God who is worthy of being praised and followed and trusted and, and uncompromisingly trusted. And this week we see not uh, that God brought Daniel or the three Hebrew children into Nebuchadnezzar's life, but here God ramps it up, right? And now he brings himself into Nebuchadnezzar's life. Now he's going to deal with Nebuchadnezzar himself. Isn't it interesting that chapter 4 is written by Nebuchadnezzar? He says in verse 2, It seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. So chapter 4 is Nebuchadnezzar's story written by Nebuchadnezzar. And as we begin to look at it, I think that we can see a little bit uh, about some principles that guided the way that he told his story. Because everyone here has a story too, don't you? Everyone here has experienced God coming into your life and doing something in your life. And he invites you to tell that story. So how do we do that? Well, to tell our story, I think the first thing is we gotta, we've got to learn that we, we can own our sin. To own our sin. In verses 4 through 18, uh, a, a part of this is really Nebuchadnezzar sharing and owning his own sin. He's confessing, isn't he? Well, I'm not sure. What do you mean? Well, the, glad you asked. Let's, let's look a little bit more closely. First of all, in verses 4 and 5, we see that he had the sin of, of worry and fear in his heart. In verse 4, uh, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream, and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay in my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. So that he was fearful. Now, we understand that we've been told by Jesus that we're to not be afraid. He says, don't fear man who can uh, kill the body, uh, but fear God who can take away body and soul and cast them into hell. He tells us, uh, the Apostle Paul tells us, to be anxious for nothing but in all things with prayer and supplication. And then Jesus himself also said that we're not to worry about anything, right? Because God's going to take care of us. But here's Nebuchadnezzar. What's he saying? He's saying, I was worried. I was afraid. And what was he afraid of? A dream, right? Isn't that just like one step under being afraid of the dark, right? And yet this is a king, this is a king who rules over massive uh, land and, and, and millions of people, and he's, he's gone in and he's conquered other nations, and he's ruled over them with such an iron fist, and he's afraid of his dream. 
And he's able to confess that. He even knows that it shouldn't alarm. Later on, he tells Daniel, don't be alarmed by the dream. Well, you were a king, right? And so he, he confesses that. Now, it's, it's not a huge sin, but it is, it is indeed a sin, and he's able to confess it. The next one is a, a little bit larger sin, and that's verses 6 through 8, where he confesses to his idolatry. He says, So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon, that they may make known to me the interpretation of the dream. The first aspect of his idolatry is, do you remember from Nebuchadnezzar, one of the problems he's had all along? He trusts people. So what does he do when he's troubled by his dream? What should he do when he's troubled by his dream? Be anxious for nothing but all things in prayer and supplication. Let your quest be made known to you, the wise men of your kingdom. No, no, no. You take him to God. But he didn't. Where did he go? He immediately turned to people. That's where his first place was. That's the first step of his idolatry, was looking for the people to meet his needs. But then it goes even worse. <clears throat> Verse 7. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in, and I related the dream to them, but they could not make it known, its interpretation known to me. Who does he turn to? To these religious leaders in that area. To the diviners, to the conjurers. Even the Chaldeans were just, uh, there's two different ways in which Chaldeans are used. One, it's used to speak of the Babylonians. The other, it's used to speak of a, a religious sect within the Babylonians. But he turns to these people that, have, that don't know the true and the living God, but they serve idols. He turns to his idolatry. He turns, he says, I'm going to look to people, but if I can't get them, I'm going to go to their gods. So he wants to look to other gods. So he's confessing not just his, his uh, worry and his fear, but also his idolatry. And he also confesses to his hard heart. Look at verse 9. O Belteshazzar, which also speaks of his um, idolatry, because why, why was Daniel called Belteshazzar? It was after, at that time, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's own God. But he turns to uh, Belteshazzar, and look at what he says about Belteshazzar. He says, Chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream which I have seen along with its interpretation. In the verse 18 he says, This is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, O Belteshazzar, tell me its interpretation, inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. What does he know about Daniel? He knows that Daniel is able to interpret dreams, right? How does he know that? Because he's already seen that, and Daniel made it clear that he was able to do it simply because of God Almighty, the one true God, was able to give him the interpretations. And he describes that as saying, the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So he understands that Daniel is different, that he serves a different God, and that he's, he's an individual who serves the true and the living God. And even though he knows that, he didn't start by asking for Daniel, did he? He started out with his other gods. His heart was hardened. His heart had not been softened because of what Daniel had done to his begin to change him, and he should have followed after the true and the living God. His heart was not softened after he saw what uh, happened to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. His heart continues to be hardened, and so he confesses this, and he shows that this was the reality of who he was. Now, he's, he's speaking at this time as he would have seen it at the moment that it happened, and it's just a, a literary device that he used in trying to tell the story, that he takes himself back and he says, this is what was happening at that moment. And in doing that, he reveals to us his own failings, his own sins. He owns his sin. What does it mean to own your sin? It means to say, I am the one who is responsible for my actions, for my words, and for my deeds. 
It's the exact opposite of the apology that you might offer to someone when you're in the midst of conflict in which you, you turn to them and say, oh, you know, I just need to apologize and tell you I'm really sorry that I got mad at you when you were being such a jerk. Please forgive me. Right? Not exactly owning my sins when I do that. What am I doing? I'm first off saying, well, it's your fault I got mad because you were being a jerk. And number two, I'm calling them a jerk, right? And so all of a sudden, this is, this is going around. And then we may magnanimously turn around and say, oh, oh, but no offense at calling you a jerk. I, I, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings with that. Because it sounds a lot like a compliment, right? When someone calls you that. You, you're pretty sure, yeah, they were probably trying to make me feel better, right? Why else would you have said that? But you see what we do? We, we, we blame shift all the time. We want to put the blame on someone else and we minimize our sins. But you see, if I'm going to own my sins, I'm not doing either one of those. I'm saying, I'm the one who's at fault. And I'm able to say, I'm sorry for the horrible things that I did. I have no excuse. It was wrong. How do we get there in our lives? I don't know about you, but I, 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 I see it's a struggle. It's a difficulty to own my sins. And I see it in a lot of people. It's hard to do. To do it, I've got to begin to really value truth. Remember David's sin with Bathsheba? As he was sinning, first off, by by not going out to war when the kings went to war. He was sinning probably and just lounging around his house until the afternoon. And he was sinning as he's looking out and he sees a woman bathing and he doesn't turn away, but instead he lusts. He brings her to himself and he has a sinful relationship and then he eventually has her husband killed to hide that relationship. As he makes his great confession to God in Psalm 51, in the beginning of this confession, he has this to say in verse 6. He says, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. As David is confessing his sin, he's aware that a central part of his confession needs to be the realization of truth. What is truth? What really happened? And I need to take that to God. I can't make stuff up, and I can't minimize, and I can't blame shift. But what's the truth? The Apostle John talks about that in 1 John chapter 1 as well, as he says in, in verse 8 of chapter 1, he says, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Starts there, right? If I say I haven't sinned, what do I know? I'm self-deceived. Of course I've sinned. What else? I don't have the truth inside me. I'm not living consistent with that reality. But then he says, but if I confess my sin, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This whole context of confession has to do with truth. Even his his statement to confess is the the Greek word homalageo. Homa, H-O-M-O, which means the same, and legeo, which is the word for word, or thought, or idea. Jesus was the logo, the logos of God. He's the word of God. And it's more than just, just, just the, 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 a, a word, but it's all of the thoughts that are conveyed by word. It was, it was the idea of God that is, is revealed to us. And what he's saying is, confession is to have the same word as God, to speak the same words as God, to see my sin in the same way that God sees it. 
That's the truth that I've got to begin to value. But I'd rather see the sin I, I, the way I see it, right? Or the way that I want other people to see it. Or the way in which I want to frame it. But if I'm going to own my sin, I've got to value truth to come to that place where I see it the way God sees it. The fact is, I've sinned. And by sin, it means that I've done something. Uh, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. I've violated his law somehow. But in confessing it, I don't need to exaggerate it. Sometimes we overstate our sin. I know all of us who are, you know, believe in a five points of Calvinism say, well, we're totally depraved. How can we overstate it? It's just, and yeah, yeah, I get all that. It isn't that we, we make it more heinous than it is, but we, we try to act as though there's more sin than there actually is. Um, we'll say things like, you know, uh, every thought I ever have is always awful all the time and I never do, you know, and, and, and things like that. And, and that's just not what the Bible teaches us about our sin. And it's not the reality of what we experience. We don't believe in utter depravity. Utter depravity says that everything is always sinful and only sinful, right? We believe in total depravity before we come to Christ, and that means that sin has touched every part of my being, that it's, 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 a, it's a part of that. But I am not as bad as I could be. I could be worse. As bad as it is, it could be worse. And that's what we hold to. But we also believe that we, who are believers in Jesus Christ, are dead to sin. Romans 6 tells us. That has meaning, doesn't it? That's not just a, a, a cutesy statement or something that will be true later because Paul uses it in the past tense. We've already died to our sin, which means you don't only always all the time sin, but you do sin. And so I don't have to exaggerate it. I don't have to make it more. And sometimes we want to make it more because we think that somehow by doing that, we're exalting God's grace. See how gracious he is? Because I'm, I'm this horrible, rotten person. I also see people beginning to find glory in them being worse than anybody else. I'm a far worse sinner than you. You just wish you could sin like I'd sin. That may be true, but that isn't an issue. <laughs> we're, not, we're not better sinners. It's not a place of pride. Which The irony of that is astounding. But that's where we go. But to be honest and to recognize, what did I do? It was sin. And to confess it. But then the other side it is, don't minimize it either. Don't make it as though, well, it's no big deal, Right? Yeah, I sin, but everybody does. So, okay. Yeah, I sin, but they sin worse, right? Again, we get into that competition. We don't got to go there. there. There's something else. How about just being honest, valuing the truth? But there's a challenge to that. Because there's a risk associated with that, isn't there? So in order to own my sin, in order to, to in, in valuing the truth, I'm going to have to begin to trust the cross. Because isn't that maybe the truest truth? I want to value the cross. There's a risk in owning my sin. One of the risks is people may begin to label me according to my sin, right? We, we find, and okay, I lied. And so people are now going to label me as a liar. And I'm afraid of that. Well, but the fact is, didn't I lie? Yeah. Well, maybe I need to reform and repent and, and not be a liar, right? But I'm afraid of what that, that reputation might be. I'm afraid that people may write me off. They may reject me. And they may reject my message if they know my sin. As I'm doing evangelism, if I begin to tell people uh, about my failings, aren't they going to quit listening? Right? Aren't they going to say, well, how can a sinner tell me anything? 
How can a person who sinned tell me anything? And I became afraid of that. What's, what's the remedy? How do I get past that risk of owning my sin? It's the choice to trust the cross, not ourselves or our appearance. Is the Bible going to last forever? Okay, so there's a little bit of conviction to that. Some of you agree. So the rest of you are going to try to bring you along. The Bible says it's going to last forever. Now, is the Bible going to last forever? Now we're good. We got that, okay? It says it's, it's, it's for eternal. So that means the Word of God lasts forever. If the Word of God lasts forever, that means that uh, 100,000 years down the road, when I see David, I will still know because I'll have the scriptures that will tell me about his sin with Bathsheba, right? Yeah. Yeah, David's going to have to deal with that, isn't he? I also think it's only fair that my sin's going to be just as known to him, right? Because it wouldn't be fair to David to have his and not ours, right? My perspective. I can't say that that's what the Bible says. We're also going to have Peter's sins. We're going to know, right? Peter's sins of before the cock crowed, he denied Jesus three times. And you know, I think there's a worse sin in Peter's life. Do you remember the trouble that Jesus went to to convince Peter that Gentiles should be saved? Right? He had him have this vision and these animals come down and, and they're there and, and he tells Peter, Peter, I, I want you to have pulled pork and lobster and, and a cheeseburger. It's all good. Go for it. Right? And Peter says, no, no, no. He says, hey, if I call it clean, don't you call it unclean. And then he goes to Cornelius and sees the Gentiles saved. And it's just tremendous. It wasn't very long after that that he was convinced to separate from the Gentile believers. I think that may be the greater sin. And for that, God sent Paul to rebuke him to his face, is what Paul says. And so we see this, this reality that our sin is, a re, is, is true. We have sinned. But what is it that allows David and Peter to go on with life in heaven and to not be bothered? How is it that Thomas is able to survive when each new person who meets him in heaven says, Oh, you're doubting! You're, uh, hi, Thomas. Right? What allows him to deal with that? So he trusts the cross more than his appearance. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. There's been a lot of ink spilled in an effort to try to describe what that thorn in the flesh might be. Um, some say, you know, it's because he was kind of hunchbacked and, and stooped, and that was the, the thorn in the flesh. Others say, you know, he had really bad eyesight, so it was really hard for him to, to see and to write, and these were the thorns in the flesh that he wanted. But you know, what you know about the Apostle Paul, do you really think that he would think having a hunchback was really a messenger of Satan in his mind? Do you think that's where he'd go? If he'd have a hard time seeing, do you think he'd say, this is my thorn in the flesh, this horrible thing that I'm faced with, I can't see real well. Really? That doesn't seem consistent with the character that I see in the Apostle Paul. What do I know about Paul? I know that he was raised a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, right? And that's important because Benjamin was the only tribe that stuck with uh, Judah in the, the uh, Civil War. 
And so they, they formed the, the, the new country of Judah. And so he's a Benjamin. Okay, that's pretty significant. And then not only that, but he's a Pharisee, right? And he says, according to the law, he was found blameless. Here's a guy who his entire makeup before Christ, his entire sense of value, his entire salvation is based in his adherence to the law, right? This is who we're talking about. This is the Apostle Paul. Now, any of you who are rule keepers, I won't ask you to raise your hand because you'd be compelled to do so because that's the rule. But any of you who are rule keepers and are good at it know that there is a danger which comes with being a rule keeper, and that is it's really easy to be critical of those who aren't, right? And isn't that what we see in the Pharisees? As we look at them, they were continually condemning everybody else. Remember the Pharisee who was praying? And he says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this guy. The tax collector, who's over there going, forgive me the sinner, right? But the Pharisees point the finger. It's what they did all the time, because that's what rule keepers who are good at keeping rules do. They're very critical of other people. And being that critical is a sinful thing, is it not? What if this was a temptation that Paul faced, and he struggled with, and he fell a lot, like with John Mark? And John Mark was imperfect. He says, get him out of here. Right? And he divides because of this critical, judgmental spirit that he wrestled with throughout his life. And wouldn't Paul, the man of faith, be tormented by his own failing? It would eat him up. I don't know for sure. This is my suspicion in, in looking at the character of the Apostle Paul. And how would he deal with that? I think he would deal with that in verse 9. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. What was God's answer to him when he asked three times, Wouldn't you take this critical spirit away from me? God says, My grace is sufficient. If God took it away from this Pharisee, what would that have done? Can't you just see that he'd gone, yeah, baby, I got this. I got that. I prayed and it's gone. I am now perfect. And then he would be able to stand before God with the righteousness of his own derived from the law. But Paul learned to want to stand not with such a righteousness, but with the righteousness which is by faith. Why? Because he trusted in the cross of Christ. I can own my sin because of the reality of what this symbolizes. Because Jesus, in time and place, had his arms spread out, nails driven into his hands and feet, was lifted up on a cross, and had to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And because of the reality of that, and because of the reality that God the Father accepted that sacrifice with so much power that it raised Jesus from the dead, I can own my sin because it's fully and completely and forever forgiven. And so I don't have to be afraid of owning my failing. Nebuchadnezzar didn't have to be afraid to reveal his worry, his idolatry, and his hard heart. Do you trust Jesus Christ in just that way? 
I want to invite everybody here today to be certain that you have, and whether you're a Christian or you've never trusted in Jesus, the answer is the same. Admit that you've sinned. Not that you're a sinner. Because I can say I'm a sinner, and then I'm just like everybody else. It's no big deal, right? There's no personal guilt in that. But when I admit my specific sin, there is the guilt that is there. Admit it. And then believe that Jesus has died for that. And rest in that. And then confess that to all around you. That Jesus has died for my sins. You see the ABC? Admit, believe, and confess. That's all we need to do. And then we're able to own our sin. That's our first step. If we're going to tell our story, is we own our sin. The second step is to explain God's work. To explain God's work. Let's begin reading in verse uh, 19. Then Daniel whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar replied, My lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged. It is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. In that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven, and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. And this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field, and you be given grass to eat like cattle, and be drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And in that it was a commanded to leave the stump with its roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case they may be a prolonging of your prosperity. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he walked on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You'll be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. And he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle 
and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Here Nebuchadnezzar is telling what happened to him, both the interpretation of the dream and its fulfillment. And what's central to this this story that he's telling was who is the one who did it? He's explaining, as he said even earlier, he's explaining the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for him. He's talking about the fact that God was involved in his life. You see, Christianity is more than an ideology. It's more than a set of doctrines. It is an ideology. There are a set of doctrines that we hold to. We stand together and we confess, uh, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, right? We do have doctrines that we hold to. We hold to the Westminster Standards and the PCA. And that is the, the Confession of Faith along with the Larger and Shorter Catechism. There are doctrinal standards, but, but Christianity is more than that. The temptation continually within the faith of God's people is that we tend to lean toward it being just a set of ideas, just a set of, of doctrinal statements, and we move away from God. We maybe even move to a place where we, we, we talk so highly of the Word of God, of the Bible being the Word of God, as the way that God reveals Himself. We say all those wonderful things, but we miss the God that it reveals. Isn't that precisely what Jesus warned the people in His day? He said, you search the Scriptures because you believe that in these you'll have eternal life, but these testify of Me, and you're unwilling to come to Me that you may live. And He warns them of that reality and that danger, and we have to be aware of that. What Nebuchadnezzar is showing is he didn't just decide to adopt the the message of, of Daniel and the doctrines of the Word of God, but he interacted with the true and the living God that they reveal. The true and the living God is involved in our lives is the central idea of biblical faith. From it, we see the truth of of how does he get involved in our life? He sends his son to die for our sins. But you know, more than that, he makes us alive. And it began in in Genesis chapter 2 when God started the church. Genesis 2, 7, we read that God formed man from the dust of the earth and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living being. What's the very first interaction between God and, and man It's that God is giving him life personally and close and face-to-face. Man is created for that face-to-face relationship with God. That is the beginning of biblical faith, of a biblical relationship with God, of biblical religion. We see it in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. We read, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And it's so, fo- it's so important for us to notice that he doesn't know the land yet, that, that Abraham is going to step forth in faith, that God is going to show him the land. But it's so easy for us to miss the first part of that paragraph. What's the first thing he says? Then the Lord said to Abram, We become so used to it that we lose sight of the fact that that is a tremendous moment. That is Almighty God who dwells outside of time and space, entering into time and space to communicate with an individual. 
I think nowhere in Scripture do we find that God stops being involved in our individual lives. But He continues to engage in that relationship with us. In Mark 2, verse 14, As he that is Jesus passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. There's so much that can be said about this and the realization that when, when Levi got up and followed Jesus, he lost his job. He could never go back because he'd been appointed to that job. The fisherman could just get a net and go back to fishing, right? But to Levi, this was life-changing. This was everything. He had no idea if he'd be paid ever again. And so he makes this change. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, addresses this in the second chapter. He comments on this verse about Levi. And his words, I think, are incredibly instructive to us. It's a lengthy passage, so you can read along with it. Um, and, uh, but... But the significance of what Bonhoeffer is saying, I think, is so important for us as, as a seed kernel of our faith. He says, The call goes forth and is at once followed by the response of obedience. The response of the disciples is an act of obedience, not a confession of faith in Jesus. And I want to be clear what he's saying. What he's saying is that when Levi gets up and, and follows Jesus, when Jesus said, come follow me, Levi didn't obey that by standing up and saying, I believe, and then sitting down and continuing to take uh, taxes, right? It was more than that. It was obedience to the call. And that was a demonstration of his faith. How could the call immediately evoke obedience? The story is a stumbling block for the natural reason, and it is no wonder that the frantic attempts have been made to separate the two events. By hook or by crook, a bridge must be found between them. Something must have happened in between, some, some psychological or historical event. Thus we get the stupid question. Surely the publican must have known Jesus before, and that previous acquaintance explains his readiness to hear the Master's call. Unfortunately, our text is ruthlessly silent on this point, and in fact, it regards the immediate sequence of call and response as a matter of crucial importance. It displays not the slightest interest in the psychological reason for a man's religious decisions. And why? For the simple reason that the cause behind the immediate following of call by response is Jesus Christ himself. It is Jesus who calls, and because it is Jesus, Levi follows at once. This encounter is a testimony to the absolute, direct, and unaccountable authority of Jesus. There's no need of any preliminaries, and no other consequence but obedience to the call. Because Jesus is the Christ, he has the authority to call and to demand obedience to his word. Jesus summons men to follow him, not as a teacher or a pattern of the good life, but as the Christ, the Son of God. In this short text, Jesus Christ and his claim are proclaimed to men. Not a word of praise is given to the disciple for his decision for Christ. We're not expected to contemplate the disciple, but only him who calls and his absolute authority, according to our text, there is no, according to our text, there is no road to faith or discipleship, no other road, only obedience to the call 
of Jesus. Because it's Jesus. Because Jesus invaded Levi's life, he responded. Because Jesus had done something, he followed. It was that relationship that was central. We see in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That it was God who came into our lives and invaded our lives and gave us life that we might believe. And then in John chapter 1, verse 14, that we read at Christmas time, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you see the point? God's at work in our lives. And as we're telling the story, what we're telling the story of is God's work in our life. How he has invaded our life, what he's done. Consider Nebuchadnezzar's example of God's work in his life. First of all, Nebuchadnezzar shows us God's kindness in his life. Verse 19. He starts out and he says, Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not be, do not let the dreamer's interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar replied, My lord, If only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. First off, Nebuchadnezzar didn't have to write that down, did he? I mean, it happened, but he he left certain other things out, but he, he, he wrote that down. Why? Probably because it impacted him. Because you see and hear the kindness of Daniel's words. I don't know about you, but I can see a little bit of my fiery Irishman coming out if a situation like that faced me, Right? It's like I'm hearing this, uh, this uh, dream and I'm understanding what God's going to do to him and I'm going, yes, yes, justice. And I'm going to be bold. I'm going to stand up and I say, Nebuchadnezzar, it's you, dude. You're going down. The God of heaven has got your number and you're in trouble. Right? I can see myself, but what, it, what happens instead with Daniel? Daniel's troubled. He's saddened. He's heartbroken. At what's going on. And, and he says, King, I, I wish these horrible things would happen to your enemies. What a, what a kind, loving thing to say. Which is, you know, kind of what we say to people in our country which are on the different political position than we are, right? I mean, essentially that's all we say to them, right? That kind of kindness is missing from our lives. It's missing within the church for those who may have a different theological position than we have. But we treat one another with animosity. We talk about our debates in the church as being warfare. But Daniel loved Nebuchadnezzar. And he said, I wish it wasn't so. And Nebuchadnezzar recognized the kindness which was found in that love that was shown to him. The love that was shown to him, the kindness that was shown to him in his kingdom. In verses 20 through 22, he, he spells out for us the magnificence of his kingdom, right? Daniel says, well, this is what your kingdom is. You've got a great kingdom. God has done wonderful things to you, right? And he lays it out, and that's a kindness. And he wants, Nebuchadnezzar is recognizing, he's telling the story. He saw that God was kind. He saw that God was kind in Daniel. He saw that God was kind in giving him the kingdom. He saw that God was kind in in the message that was brought to him that, that this destruction was coming upon him, that he was told ahead of time. God didn't have to do that, and he knew it. Why did God bring this kindness into his life? I think it's because of Romans chapter 2, verse 4. 
which tells us, do you think lightly of the kindness of God, not remembering that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's his kindness that does that. And the kindness was shown to him to bring him to repentance. Not only is Nebuchadnezzar's example of God's kindness, but it's also of the call to repent. Daniel directly calls Nebuchadnezzar to repent. He says in uh, verse 27, Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Daniel calls him to repent. He says, King, right now, even now, it's not too late. This thing has been declared by the holy ones of God, by the angelic messengers, by the authority of Almighty God, that this is going to happen. But, O King, maybe if you turn to God, He will relent and not bring this evil upon you, not take you through this time. King, now is the time to repent, not just in general, but in specific, He tells him, to begin to care for the poor, to show mercy upon them. There's this invitation for him to repent. And then there's the invitation to repent, which is in the way that it lives itself out. What happens to him? It all happens exactly as God said. He waited 12 months. He gave him 12 months after hearing this message. He gave him a full year. Nebuchadnezzar, the words of Daniel would ring in his ear for a year. And what does he do 12 months later? He stands up and says, I'm the man. I'm awesome. And even as the words are in his mouth, God brings upon him the very thing that he had said and shows to him, I wasn't kidding. And uses all of those events to what end? To just humble him and destroy him? No. That he might see and believe and have life. You see, as God takes us through those difficult times of life, He's taking us through them for our own good. The, the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, He says, And you've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as my sons. My sons, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are approved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines and He scourges every son whom He receives. Parents, when your child is reaching up for the, uh, the top of the stove that's hot, why do you flick him in the hand? Because you want to be mean and oppressive and control their every thought and move, right? Of course not. You do that because there's a danger which is there that you want to teach them to avoid, right? It's to their good. It's because you love this child that you want to say, it's not healthy to put your hand on top of the burner, right? Simple lessons. The child is convinced you want to kill them. But the reality is you're protecting their life. How much more with God of heaven who knows the end from the beginning as he disciplines us and he disciplines us for our good. It was to, to Nebuchadnezzar's good that he spent the time out in, among the beasts of the field because he couldn't learn by listening to the prophet. So God took him through that hard time to teach him who he was and then to restore to him the glories which were there. How has God invaded your life? I want to look at two, two ways in particular that maybe God has invaded your life. As you think of telling your story and you want to look at, at explaining God's works, 
Think about Christians he's brought in your life. I can look back over my life, and there are a few Christians that I remember. One was a, a, a young man, uh, was a, a classmate, and uh, I remember him handing me a, a, a gospel tract and then running away in fear. But he gave me the gospel tract, and I remember reading it. Didn't understand it. Didn't understand it. And then Robin. We first began to, to uh, be friends and to spend time together, and we talked about truth and, and religion and spirituality. And she was able to look me in the eyes, explain to her what I believed, and say, that's just stupid. You know, with such, such gentleness is consistent with her, but recognizing that it was, it was literally that. And said, what I do know is the Bible is the word of God. You should read it. And I did. And God changed my life. John Bunyan was walking along one day and uh, was not a believer. And he heard three women talking. And he stopped and he listened. And he said they were talking about the new life. And it caught his attention. These three women were there. Why were they there at that moment? Because God put them there, right? God led them to that place. Think of uh, Westminster Short Catechism number question. What are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he's foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. It was by God's foreordination that those women were there. It was by his foreordination they were talking about new life. Why were they talking about the new life? Because they had all experienced it by God's foreordination. And they were there at that moment talking about it and he had John walk right by at that moment. Why? That he might hear it and it might pique his interest and that he might experience the new life that they were talking about. And that led to the conversion of John Bunyan who later would shepherd so many and would write The Pilgrim's Progress and would transform many, many lives. Think about the Christians who've crossed your path. And think about God's special providence in your life. There are those times. Do you know... I can look at my life and I can see even before I was a Christian that there were some times that God just kept me from grievous sin. He just protected me from it. Kept me from going down that way. I think of, uh, you know, it may be and you experience it even now in your life. Remember that time that you wrote that angry note and you woke up the next day and you looked at your email and you realized you didn't actually send it? And you were so happy. <laughs> I'm really glad I didn't send that because that would have been horrible. Because it would have been an awful thing. And God in his providence prevented you from that sin. A good friend of mine, um, uh, Mel Pike, that we prayed for today, told me one time, he said, oh, I don't sin and there's one reason. God doesn't want me to. Well, that sounds pious. He said, no, 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 really. He doesn't want me to. He said, twice in my life I've chosen, I'm going to speed. And he takes off and there's a cop each time. He says, what's the possibility of that? He says, God does not want me to speed. I said, what? You know what? I can't debate with that. Because God in his special providence did something to prevent that. What are those special providences that he's done in your life? Where he's shown that kindness, maybe by sparing your life. Some of you have experienced incredible times in which the reality is your life was in danger. And he spared you, right? Why would he do that? John Newton was spared in a shipwreck. And through the midst of that, God used that sparing of his life to bring him to salvation. Is it possible that that's part of what God has done? And that's a part of your story that you're to tell. Those times when God clearly intervenes in your life. 
How has God invaded your life? Notice that and then tell others. It's your story. And the third step of telling our story, first, we own our sins, second, we explain God's work, and finally, we need to show the change. Verses uh, 1 through 3, we've already read. Let's read 34 through 37 and look at the change in Nebuchadnezzar's life. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished and my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true, and his ways are his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. What is it that brings about a change in our life? There is an element in which there's some personal discipline that's involved. But what inspires that personal discipline? What empowers that personal discipline? What directs that personal discipline? You see, it's God who's involved in our lives. And He brings a change in our lives. We see from the standpoint that we are dead in our sins and He made us alive by which we are able to believe. He made us alive. He has made us able to see the error of what we were doing. And he allows us to see the change that needs to occur in our lives. And then He empowers us and guides us and enables until He accomplishes that change in our lives. And He does this through His relationship with us. Because God is a relational being. We talk about covenants all the time within the, our, our, our denomination, within our church. We talk about covenants. Covenants are our relationship. We talk about the covenant of marriage. That's the terms of relationship of the marriage. We have a covenant in our relationship with God. It's how he relates to us. It's what he said to Abraham in, in Genesis 17, 7, saying that I will be your God and, you'll, uh, uh, and the God of your children after you. He says to uh, the nation of Israel in, in Exodus 19, 5, that he'll be their God and they will be his people. We see him continually interacting with us by way of relationship and through this covenant relationship. Consider how that relationship changes you. I think one of the ways that that changes us, when the God Almighty interacts with us in his love, he produces love in us. Jesus says, by this all men will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another in, in John chapter 13, 34. But you love people. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. He ends it with, may your peace abound. As he begins to tell his story, he's telling all the people that he wants them to hear his story. He says, may your peace abound. He's asking that the shalom of God would come upon them and they would experience this peace. That's a little different than how he's dealt with people who disagree with Daniel's God in the past, right? Like uh, saying, if, if you disagree or speak poorly of that God, I'm going to like tear you limb from limb and your, your house will be fall on top of you and, and destroy all your people. Went from there to... May your peace abound. Huh. He learned to love. He learned to show that type of, of kindness to seek the highest good of the people around him. 
years ago, I watched a video blog that uh, Penn Gillette had uh, posted. Uh, he's the speaking part of Penn and Teller, uh, which is a, a comic uh, magic uh, show. He's also an avowed atheist and, and libertarian. And uh, he has, uh, for a number of years, really focused on, on speaking on his uh, views of atheism, his views of libertarianism, and, um, and he uses his blog for that. And in this, he was telling a story of a guy who came up to him um, after one of his shows. He's a guy that they had used in a, in a, uh, a prop, and he had some of the props. And, and he came up and he spoke with uh, Penn, and he was just really uh, kind and friendly, and they had a really good conversation. And then he handed uh, uh, Penn a copy of Gideon's New Testament. And it was interesting, even listening to him, he had no idea what it meant. He said, so it's, you know, it's New Testament, some of the Psalms from the New Testament, I guess. And so he, he, he didn't understand how the, the, the Gideon New Testament worked, and it was just kind of interesting. And he said, and some people think that as an atheist, I'm going to be offended by that. He says, but, but for me, I wonder, how much do you have to hate someone to not proselytize them? He says, if you believe that there is a God, and there's only one, and there's a heaven and a hell, and those who don't believe in, in the God that you believe in are going to perish in hell. How much do you have to hate them to not tell them about that God? How horrible would that be? That you would say, oh, a little bit of conflict with someone is, is, is too big a deal. I, I, I don't want that conflict. And yet you're saying, but I can then go to hell? Are you kidding me? And boy, doesn't that speak volumes to us? Here's a thinking individual who just sees this rightly. But the reason we evangelize people isn't to be better than them. It isn't to condemn them. It isn't any of those. It isn't even to get them to come to our church. It's very simply because we love them. That song by Keith Green, that song to my parents, that says, I only just want to see you there. That's all. That's all it's about. Is I love people. And that's why I tell them my story. Because I love them. And I want the very best for them. And then I can live in humility. He ends it, he says, uh, he's able to humble those who walk in pride compared with what he said earlier. Is this not Babylon the Great that I built by my own hand for my own glory? Quite a, quite a shift. I think he understood firsthand exactly what that means to be humbled. But what if God then builds in us and he transforms us and we're able to show the change that we're a people who now love people to really love people. And we're a people who are humble. I'm not trying to be better than anybody. Because I just live my life. It's just one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. Right? I want to conclude by reading a little bit of Charles Spurgeon's from his work entitled My Conversion. He says... I've heard men tell the stories of their conversions and of their spiritual lives in such a way that my heart loathed them and their stories too. They have told of their sins as if they were boasting in the greatness of their crimes. They have mentioned the love of God not with a tear of gratitude, but with a heart, uh, not with a heart of thanksgiving, but as if they exalted themselves as much as they exalted God. Oh. When we tell the story of our own conversion, I would have it done differently. We should tell it with great sorrow, remembering what we used to be. We should also tell it with great joy and gratitude, remembering how little we deserve these things.
I was once preaching on conversion and salvation. I felt, as preachers often do, that it was dry work to tell their sto- this story. A dull, dull tale it was to me. Suddenly, the thought crossed my mind. And by the way, this does happen while I preach. Other things come into my mind that I don't actually say. It's hard to believe that there's other things, in the, but that, 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 that does happen. So as he's saying this, it's like, yes, as a preacher, I have experienced this. Anyway, suddenly the thought crossed my mind. Why, you're a poor, lost, ruined sinner yourself. Tell it. Tell it as you received it. Begin to tell of the grace of God as you trust you feel it yourself. Why, then my eyes began to be fountains of tears. Those hearers who had nodded their heads began to wake up. They listened because they were hearing something that the speaker himself felt and that they recognized as being true to him, even if it was not true to them yet. Can you not remember, dearly beloved, the day of your salvation? Can you not remember that day of days, that best and brightest of hours, when you first saw the Lord? It was the day you lost your burden, received the role of promise, rejoiced in full salvation, and went on your way in peace. Do you remember your story of how God brought you out of darkness into light, out of death to life. Nebuchadnezzar was so impacted by that story of what God had done in his life that he had to take over for Daniel and write chapter 4 and tell his story. You have a story. Tell your story. Own your sin. Explain God's work and show the change that God has done. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your work in our lives. Thank you for the work in every life of each of the people who are here. You have done this great thing. You have brought us to salvation. Help us, O God, to tell that story to the world around us. And would you, Father, please, through the telling of that story, bring men, women, and children to trust in you. Amen.